If you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. We're going to read a larger portion, so you just kind of hang with us. You know back in the Old, Old Testament, sometimes you would stand and I would sit. Did you know that? And yeah, yeah. Stand for the whole thing. So, you know, that's good. That's good. All right. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great storm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man who, was, who had an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Cut him out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and the country, and the people came to what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from that region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and begged to proclaim, in, I'm sorry, and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you would just bow with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for clarity and conviction. We want to do as you would have us do. We want to respond appropriately 
We want to not fear you in a way so that we want to get away from you, but that we might draw near to you. Lord, I pray for some in our church family and friends that are struggling today with different things. We pray for Teresa's father and her family, for Suzanne's daughter. We pray for my cousin's wife. I ask that you would continue to help all of these, Lord, and guide the steps of their family, that you would bless them. I pray for those who are about to have babies in our church family. Pray for those that are about to be born and for their mothers and for the whole family that you would just guide each step and you would protect and and keep them and watch over them. In Christ's name, amen. So what comes into your mind when you think of power or powers? Like if I were just to say that, I mean, that's an important question for you to ask yourself. What, what What is it that comes into my mind? Because that is something that um, I think different people in different times might answer differently. Um, you might think of the seat of power, like a government. Like you, you may say, well, that's, that's kind of the seat of power. That's where kind of decisions are made. And so that might come to your mind. You might think of a huge business, which has great power, maybe to change an industry or uh, an economy or even the information that is transmitted to our world. So those are places where you say, those are places of power, like that you might think about. Uh, You might think, first off, when you think about it, you might think of somebody that's very strong, like the rock. And he might stand out. And you might think, man, I just tell you, you know, he's something else, you know. Uh, You might think of the power team, if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And they may come to your mind. That's a group I like to think about regularly. They could tear phone books and bend iron bars and break cinder blocks with their head. I mean, and with their arms. And they would shatter massive chunks of ice with brute force. Those things might kind of make you think about those things. But uh, if you were a first century person, you might think, what would they be thinking about? Well, they might think of the sea like the Sea of Galilee, if they were from that region. And they might think of those great storms. They might think of um, the Roman army and its powers. That might come to their mind and conjure up thoughts where they're like, you know, that is a great power. And they want to get rid of that power, of course. Um, They might kind of think of spiritual powers. You watch uh, Jesus' ministry, and there's a lot of demonic influences that are there and that are being addressed in his time some today like what we'll study might think of the crazy man who lived among the tombs who had superhuman strength so all of those things powers are kind of we're all dealing with that we are thinking about different powers and we think of if we were in this region which I, you know, I've thought about that for years, about different parts of the world and country that you live in. In this region, you might be scared of a tornado. If you were living in the 21st century, things like COVID would come to your mind. And so just depending on where you are and what's going on, there are things that come to you and that we face and we think, man, those are like really, they could be really frightening things. I uh, think about some of the biggest talkers that I know, 
I mean, like, really, they're, like, big, I mean, big talk. You know, they, they can tell you everything about everything. And they know everything. And they are, uh, they promote themselves as smarter, tougher, and braver than anyone that they've ever met, you know. But oftentimes, they're the most fragile. It's crazy. Because there's a lot of feet, like there's a lot of fear out there, and it drives people in a lot of different ways. And so today we're talking about power and fear, and we'll consider those things. And it made me think about a song written by a guy named Ross King. And it says, uh, the things that I, it's called The Things That I'm Afraid Of. And he goes through a list of things that he's afraid of. And you may identify with them. And so he says, um, when I'm shaking and my heart's pounding, you may say, what causes that in me? He goes on, when I get overcome with anxiety, like you think, what makes you freak out? Loss of control? Anger? what, What gets you anxious? He says, um, it's like an enemy that's living inside of me, like a mocker yelling out lies to me, and I don't feel brave. He's honest about it. He talks about walking through the valleys of the shadow of death, and it's scaring him half to death. He says, my, sh- my fear would surely kill me. Another thing he says in there is, when my emotions turn against me, not faith nor reason could convince me. Moves on when depression is affecting every ounce of me and I can get the medication and the counseling. Still, I can hear the fear calling out to me. So, you know those things. Like, you live in that kind of world. Like, this passage speaks to us because those are real things and you deal with real struggles. So today, we're going to talk about the things that we're afraid of. The things that cause fear here would be a violent and turbulent storm and then a violent and turbulent man both of those are on display and so I hope you will see that those are helpful things for us to see the question is though is there something that you should fear more than those things that's the big question that that might kind of would be kind of raised up to you is there something you should fear more And what should that fear produce? And that's what we'll deal with all that today. So let's move through and go through this uh, together. So let's look at this violent and turbulent storm. On that day when evening had come, he said, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took uh, him with them in a boat just as he was. And the other boats were with him. So what's happening is is Mark's version is very, uh, it's it's, uh, like very robust. There's a lot of information that are not with the other gospel writers. It feels like a very strong first-hand account, which most people would say would, would have come from Peter. And um, you see what's going on. Now, they're, they're stepping on into a boat, uh, and, and they're going on a sea. And the Sea of Galilee, if you've ever read anything about it, you know it's 13 miles in length, and one and a, I mean, sorry, seven and a half miles in width. So it's not huge. It's not really a huge place, but it's called a sea. And um, it, it's, uh, it's a place that is really uh, depressed, and it's like, it, it, it's not, um, it's way below like the sea level, like the Mediterranean Sea, and so it's kind of a depressed place. And it really, um, but there's like mountains and hills all around it, actually uh, really high mountains, and so the wind would come down on that sea, and it, when it came through, I mean, it would 
like rush through there. And so um, that's just a little bit of information about that. The other thing is to say that Jesus' disciples were not uh, people that had never been on the sea. They were fishermen. You remember in chapter 1, they were called. Simon and Andrew, James and John, they were mending their nets. And he said, come and follow me. And so these are uh, people that you would say had been around these things. And so they're not like people that had never experienced uh, the Sea of Galilee. They'd lived and grown up there. And so then you continue forward. And that this fishing boat, when you think about it, just kind of in your mind, it's probably like 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet high. They found one in 1986. You can go see it in a museum, and it's kind of set up where you can see it all put together. And so all this stuff is kind of like, we got the sea, we understand it's a tumultuous kind of thing, you got this boat, you've got these disciples, all of that stuff on display. And then verse 37, uh, this great windstorm rises up. And, uh, you know, you would, again, understand the circumstances, you think these are men that would have known that stuff like this could happen, had probably been on a sea, but this sea uh, when the sea really ro- this rose up, it was so turbulent that it made them afraid. Like they were scared of what was going on. And so um, I don't know if you've ever been on the water like that. Uh, when I was a kid, we were on Millwood Lake. If you've never been on Millwood Lake, you know, you wouldn't know this. But like we were driving back to Yarbor Landing and uh, it, we, we came back a little late. It was a storm. We had a 14-foot flat bottom. It was 36 inches wide with a 7.5 horsepower Evinrude on it from like 1950 and uh, I mean the, the waves were coming and I just remember it like spraying on me as we were coming over and there was lightning everywhere and the rain feeling like needles and you know I really do remember they're thinking like are we going to survive but this is much greater than that so you understand these men they were men I wasn't a little kid thinking like what's going on here and so what happens though is the thing that kind of shocks you is Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the rear of the boat in the midst of these, this roaring wind, he's asleep. And it, it is. It's shocking. You think, how in the world is he able to sleep in such like circumstances? You know, We know he's exhausted. He spent a lot of time working with people and serving people. But it is, it's shocking to see this. Then you continue on in 38. And they wake him up and they say, do you not care that we are perishing? They, they're, they're so kind of frustrated and overwhelmed. It's like an implied answer. Don't you care? Like, we're perishing here. You know, water's coming in, and he's over there sleeping. And it kind of reminds you of the Jonah story where, like, he's down on the bottom of the boat, you know, and you're like, what is going on? This place is all going uh, to pot. And, you know, this was before, like, 1950s when you got life, they had life jackets like we think of, you know. They're not wearing those, you know. So they're not, like, there's things that they, you know, would be really scared of. And so they wake Jesus up from this nap, and they're wondering, what is he going to do? And what does he do? He wakes up, and he rebukes the wind and the waves. He says, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. The idea is like, not only did the wind stop, but the sea was calmed. If you've ever been in a, when the wind slowed down, it gradually, the waves gradually slowed down. But in this case, it was kind of like Peter's mother-in-law where she had this really horrible fever and you would think she would be totally exhausted and she begins to serve. In this case, it's like everything stops when he said it. He rebuked it and it completely stopped. It's like 
in a moment, they went from like fear for their lives to like this eerie silence. Like, what is going on? Um, so he looked at them and said, why are you so afraid? What is making you so anxious? Like, why would you be so upset? Now, look at verse 41. This is like really amazing. They went from being afraid in fear of their lives to now it says they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Is that not crazy? They went from like, I don't know, you may be one of those people. I mean, honestly, uh, you may could look across the room right now and you know people who freak out over things. You may be one of those people. Sometimes the people that freak out the most are not the ones that know that they're the freakers, you know. But anyway, people that freak out all the time, you ask them, like you think in terms of like, what are you freaking out over? And you kind of could talk about that. But the interesting thing is, is they're freaking out, which rightly so, they thought they were going to die. And now they're more fearful than they ever were. That's crazy. They're, they're more fearful because they're looking at Jesus and saying the greatest power we could imagine that could take our lives has just been ceased by him. So they're more afraid than ever. I think sometimes when you get a sense of the weight of God's glory, and some of you never, maybe never have experienced that, and as a result, you're still living in fear your whole life. You live in fear of everything. But when you get a sense of the weight of his glory, there's a fear that comes with that that transcends, transcends the things that you're afraid of. And I think it's important just to, to consider that, to understand that, to grapple with that. Because to know that really does make you say, like, the thing that I'm really thinking about on earth has nothing to compare to the power that's with him. And so... We continue forward. So they see his majesty, they see the power of his words, and they wonder how in the world uh, he could be so great. They had been with him, they'd heard about it, but now they've experienced it. The scripture says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It means he spoke it into existence and it still has this result that you're living in and experiencing today. Jesus looks at the disciples, and he really does ask them, why are they so afraid? You know what? It wasn't because of their lack of knowledge. I mean, that's in this room, we've talked about, we just were singing about the greatness of God. It wasn't because of their lack of knowledge. It was for them losing, they were kind of, they were losing heart. They had like a cowardly kind of heart in the moment. The real threat to faith comes not from, Edwards says, a lack of knowledge, but from doubt and fear. That's the thing, because like we know a lot of stuff, but we struggle to believe and to trust. The question here is, um, do you fear, really fear the Lord in such a way where you put your trust in him? So we go from the storm to this turbulent man, and just um, we'll kind of move through this, and we we can't look at every little thing that you'd like to talk about. But you look here in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. By the way, that some people really struggle with like, well, I thought this town was here and here and here. And you can go and study all about it. And we can't say for certain everything about it. But um, we do know that there was a town in that area 
that was at the northeast uh, eastern shore of that lake. And so uh, you just kind of have to say, maybe we don't understand everything about this thing, but there's plenty of data out there if you want to read more about that town. But in 1970, they were, a bulldozer was cutting a road, and they, they kind of found this place in this valley of that area and uh, understood that, you know, like likely this is what we're speaking of. So anyway, in verse 2 and 3, as you start thinking about this, um, Jesus is going to meet this man uh, who's kind of met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who lives among the tombs. So uh, when you look at this text, you kind of are reminded that there's a lot of uncleanness here in this text. This is probably a Gentile, like best uh, we understand this to be. It is a Gentile region and probably a Gentile man. And he is also has an unclean spirit. So not only is he considered to be unclean, being a Gentile, and having an unclean spirit in him, but also he is in a place that would make you unclean. He is among the dead. And so all of that is kind of on display before us. He is unholy in an unholy place with an unholy spirit in him. And so, um, and not only that, he's, uh, he was uncontrollable. You look at verse at the end of verse 3 and verse 4 and 5. By the way, that's kind of how sin does. You know, when you're dominated by a sin, it really does lead to um, not good things. It's not like he has good power. It's a power to do evil, you might say. It's a corrupting kind of power within this man. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he, always, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So you see, like, this tumultuous man. He's not only like, you would be fearful of him. They must have bound him multiple times and then finally realized we can't bind him anymore. He is too strong like for us to do that. And so then he was probably kind of cast away to this place where he would be left alone. He could not harm the dead. And so that is where he finds himself at this point. He was powerful, but powerless to control himself. He would hurt others, but also hurt himself. He is completely and utterly in a place of this, just a horrible situation. Um, one author wrote, the evil forces that torment the man among the tombs equal, uh, equal and parallel the violent tempest that beset the boat on the lake. And so you see this on display in verse 6 through 8. You notice um, it appears in verse 8 that Jesus was speaking uh, to the demons saying, get out of this man. That's kind of how they would be. And while he's speaking, the man runs up and falls down before him. And this man is possessed by... We think a demon at first, right? And so this man begins to speak under the demon's control and says, Jesus, Son of the Most High. When he says that, that's shocking because the demons know more about Jesus than anybody else does in, in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Like they over and over will say things about him. He'll be like, be quiet. You know, because they, they're speaking about who he is. The Most High God, we first see that in Genesis 14 in the Old Testament. Uh, it's one of those statements that says, like, he is above all. He is the most high. And so he is saying, like, you are the son of the most high. 
It's the highest honor that you could give him. And they, he also kind of says um, in, in this, you kind of think about like in that world at that time, even if you thought, which a lot of people would believe there were multiple gods in the Gentile kind of region, they would be saying he is the highest above all. But as he moves forward in verse 9, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now that would make somebody like in this time period think, oh, we know what a legion is, like a Roman legion, like 5,600 soldiers. You know, that would be immediately your mind would go there if you were in that time period. And so you think, oh my goodness, this is a great number of demons in one man, in his body, controlling him. You know, the darkness has a hold on him like you could never imagine. And really, when we think of like demonic things, sometimes I think we kind of neglect to see that there's a lot of darkness in our world, and we don't want to call it demons or demonic activity. We kind of want to stay away from that. But we understand when Jesus is on the scenes, it becomes very clear that there are a lot of things that are going on inside of people that are not just physical, you know? And I think it's important to see that. In verse 10 through 13, and they begged him. Now, they've already said, like, don't torment us. You know, even asked, said, like, swear to, swear to God that you won't torment us. You know, they've already said that. But, um, which is kind of an interesting thing that they would say to him. But also, as he's going to go in verses 10 through 13, and they're going to speak to him and say, basically, like, don't send us away from here. We don't want to leave this country. Don't, don't scatter us at this moment. We do not want you to send us away. And so there's these pigs. There are 2,000 2, pigs there. And basically what happens is uh, they say, well, send us into the pigs, which is another unclean thing. You know, everything about this is unholy and unclean and dark. And you're saying, that's what the darkness is. It's unclean. It's evil. It's corrupting. And so what, what do you see in that? Well, Jesus says, send them into the pigs. He says, y'all go there into the pigs, basically. And they go into the pigs, and they run the pigs off of a steep bank, and all the pigs die. And if you had a pet pig, you might get upset. Be like, I don't understand. Like, doesn't Jesus love pigs? Well, understanding in the Jewish context, the pig being unclean, you see this on display in a way where you say, I think that this is a demonstration of God's coming judgment over sin, over rebellion, over darkness. He is of all that's unclean. He is going to address all of those things. And then verse 14 through 17, of course, the herdsmen who are herding 2,000 pigs, which is no small number, even today if you were to say, how much is that worth? That's worth a lot of money, you know? And the herdsmen are going to run into the town, and they are going to say, hey, this is what happened. And so the people are going to come out and say, oh, my goodness, this is what happened. And they're just kind of amazed by it. This man, you'll see him, look at verse 15. He's sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. This man has, like, been healed. This man that's really plagued the countryside, plagued the city that they lived in, I'm sure, he is now healed. He's in his right mind and has clothes on. This man has been totally damaged by all of these influences. This demonic influence has now been set free. And what happens? 
they were afraid. Does that shock you? This reminds you of the disciples. They were afraid. You know, it's like they feared the storm. These other people feared this man. And now both of them fear Jesus. Which is a powerful thing to see. And so, what do they do? They begin to beg Jesus to depart their region. Why? Because they were afraid? Were they afraid of losing income? Perhaps. Did they not care about that one man being healed more than they did their 2,000 pigs? Or their 401k or whatever you want to... You know, what, what, where were they? We don't know. We know that they were fearful. As were the disciples fearful. After the, after the story is over, Jesus is going to depart this region. And we're going to have this one last little thing in verses 18 through 20. So you really have like this violent and turbulent storm that causes fear. You have this violent and turbulent man that causes fear. And in both cases, when Jesus does what he does, there's a greater fear. And then... This last section here is, I would call it like a proper fear that leads to true faith. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim, listen, not just at his home, but in the Decapolis, which was like a place of ten cities, he began to proclaim how much that Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Think about that for a moment, just when you consider that. He has experienced great power within that was destroying his life. He has just experienced a greater power that set him free. The result... He wants to be near him. He wants to draw close to him. It reminds you of um, in the Chronicles of Narnia where the beaver says about the king, King Aslan, the lion. He said, of course he's not safe, but he's good. That man would say, of course he's not safe. Jesus is not safe. You can't put him in a box. Some of you think of like your salvation is like, it's all me. I did this one thing, or I believe this, or I prayed this prayer, or I got this and did this and did. And you think Jesus is like somehow like somebody that you can control. He's not safe. He has an eternal power. He is holding the whole universe by the word of his power. He speaks and everything listens, it submits, it yields. You're sitting there in this moment and you think there are two options. Either you run into him or you run away from him. I mentioned that song earlier. The things that I'm afraid of. I want to read it to you with the other lyrics um, now. When I am shaking and my heart's pounding, you always take me and make me lay down in peaceful fields where I can clear my head. Remind you of Psalm 23, right? 
because I get so overcome with anxiety like an enemy living inside of me, like a mocker yelling out, telling lies to me. And I don't feel brave, but I don't have to be. Because I walked through the valley of shadows, and it scared me half to death. But you're with me everywhere I go, so I don't have to give up yet. My fear would surely kill me if I didn't know the truth. The things that I'm afraid of are afraid of you. When my emotions turn against me, not faith nor reason could convince me that you have patience left to fight for me. When my depression is affecting every ounce of me, I can get the medication and the counseling, still I can hear the fear calling out to me. And I don't feel brave, but I don't have to be. Because I've walked through the valley of the shadows, and it scared me half to death. But you're with me everywhere I go, so I don't have to give up yet. My fear would surely kill me if I didn't know the truth, that the things that I'm afraid of are afraid of you. You prepare a table before me, right in front of my worst enemies. You're as calm and as relaxed as can be. There's no place where the demons won't find me, but just wait till they see who's standing behind me. I walked through the valley of shadows, and it scared me half to death. But you're with me wherever I go, so I don't have to give up yet. My fear would surely kill me if I didn't know the truth. The things that I'm afraid of are afraid of you. When you move from fear of external and internal difficulties to fear the one whom you should fear, to faith in the one whom you should fear, then you'll be in the right place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that this body would be filled with the people who rightly fear, the one who holds all things together, the one that can condemn to hell, the one that came to rescue us from the powers of hell and darkness and sin and death. We pray that we would put our hope and faith in him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.